to the Unraveling Minds podcast. My name is Rick Hernandez. I am a social work grad student, a drug and alcohol counselor, and most importantly, a father of two beautiful children. I hope you find today's episode beneficial. In today's episode, I'm having an interview with my guest, Anthony Melgar. Anthony Melgar is a good friend of mine who I have known since starting working at a nonprofit agency in 2018. I believe you were hired a month after me. I think so, right? You remember that awkward meeting we had one day in the boardroom <laughs> where a certain individual yeah, kind of asked something? So. <laughs> so I have known you since yeah, 2018. I, yeah, we started around the same time at the same nonprofit organization. Yeah. And um, so, um, Anthony, I don't know, man, just introduce yourself. Is there anything that you would like us to know about you? Want to share anything? Sure. Um, what do you want to know? Social security number? How many children? Firewall passcode? What do you need to know? <laughs> Anything you want to share, man. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. So uh, I'm Anthony uh, Melgar, or as you pronounce, Melgar. Okay. Um, so I uh, am uh, half Mexican, half Guatemalan, all fun time, you know. I graduated from CSUN back in 2016 with my bachelor's in health administration. I am currently working on my master's in public administration. And uh, yeah, I'm your coworker. I work with you at nonprofits. I mean, what else do you want to know? What do you want to tell the audience? I'm an open book. I don't know. Um, I guess what, um, what made you get into the nonprofit sector? Initially, because I know we met you, we didn't know nothing about you. You're working in a nonprofit agency. We've been there since 2018, and due to unfortunate events, if not, we would have continued being working under the same program if it wasn't for funding cuts and everything else. But what kind of made you get into that rather than pursuing like corporate business uh, or other stuff? You know, no matter what, I think there's always going to be money in a job, and so for me, it was very important to find something that I knew I was making a difference because I mean, I could go make money in the corporate world, but knowing that I'm making a difference in someone's life, um, it's really big for me. I mean, growing up, you know, stereotypical story of broke Latino, you know, trying to, to make it in their communities. And uh, I, I remember as a kid um, in, in Pacoima here in the San Fernando Valley, um, one day a local nonprofit called MEND, Meeting Every Need with Dignity, came and uh, brought buses, took us to their corporate, you know, their corporate headquarters uh, and gave us shoes, gave us school supplies. And we were just, you know, so astonished that someone was willing to do this. And I remember thinking in my head, I want to be that guy, that guy that's giving back to the community, that guy that's helping that broke little Hispanic kid, you know, get the new shoes he needs or, or whatever the need is, you know? And so it's ever since that day, I remember that I was like, I need to do something. Nice. Nice. That's a, that's a wonderful story, man. I didn't know that about you. Um, yeah, I think uh, for me, I was working at an addiction treatment center. I loved it, but it was very high end, very high end. And we we're dealing with a lot of rich uh, young adults, the majority of them in their 20s. Then we get older adults, but the majority were like very wealthy in that sense. And I remember at some point, it's like, I was asking myself, like, I don't belong here. <laughs> I love the work. I was great at my work. I, I made it in top of the hierarchy there as program manager. But I remember asking myself, like, I don't, like my heart, at some point, my heart wasn't really in it. And then um, the opportunity came up to explore this option with this agency and I jumped on it. And like the first week I fell in love with the agency. I fell in love with the work that they were doing, um, seeing kids, seeing all the programs that we were providing at that time definitely made me um, see a different side of the coin. But then what, what I was grateful for was working at that treatment center. I learned a lot of stuff that it's not necessarily used within that um, with nonprofits or with lower income communities. Mm -hmm. So I learned a lot of things that I brought from over there um, that it's not necessarily um, common in, in, in our culture or with uh, more lower income families in that sense. So that was great for me to learn and be able to apply some. Yeah, no, stuff. definitely. There's, 
Mm-hmm. Definitely. There's always, uh, you know, room to apply different skill sets from different jobs. I always find it interesting when you have someone that is coming from a completely different background and just brings up an amazing viewpoint or adds to the conversation when we're making decisions. Um, I think, you know, definitely every field that can be, it's very like a silo like, you know, you kind of get stuck in this is the mindset, this is how we do things. And then when someone's able to bring a skill set from a different sector or different field, it just definitely helps expand the knowledge. Correct, correct. And, and, and with that introduction, thank you so much. I do want to ask you, because I know you're still uh, completing your master's program. So it's still, and that's a yes. master's in public administration, correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, a master's in public administration with an emphasis in nonprofit sector management. Okay, all right. So why Very that degree? Much so, mouthful. <laughs> so why that degree? Why'd you choose uh, that? <laughs> I, I know earlier, you know, we were having a conversation about, you know, everyone gets a master's, one, to get better job prospect, you know, got to make that money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, realistically, I kind of noticed the trend Um, When I was looking for higher level positions after realizing that I need to move up, I need to do something. I can't just be, uh, you know, an admin assistant for the rest of my life. I want to, I want to get to the point where I can make those decisions and actually make an impact. So I remember I was looking through different job descriptions and I, one of the consistent things I kept saying was the type of degrees that they wanted, you know, a master's degree public administration or, or social work and then sometimes business administration. So somewhere along the lines, I kind of noticed the trend. And to begin with, the first thing I looked at was like, well, what's my GPA? What program can I get into? And luckily for me, CSUN is a very friendly <laughs> university with low GPAs. <laughs> um, very true. You know, I've, I've had a lot of luck with, with CSUN. Sometimes I, I fall through the crack. And it, it it's gone in my favor to say the least. Well, but but here's but, the thing uh, though. Here here's the thing because I have um, I have family members, I have acquaintances that I know, and they're always worrying about going to the perfect school, um, getting that perfect degree or the perfect title and all this crap, right? That ask you for higher GPA, that ask you for the GR scores, that ask you for all of this stuff. But at the end of the day, it comes down to. Who are you as a person? You can go to the best school. You can go to Harbor, man. And if you're lazy and you don't do the work or when you get your job, you just fucking gossip and talk shit about everybody, you're going to get fired no matter what. I think people get caught up too much in got to have my high GPA, got to do this right, got to do that. And I think at the end of the day, those things don't really matter in the real world. Can it open doors? Sure. Sure, it can open doors going to a fancier school, but it can also lead you to a lot of debt. Yeah, that, that's one of the big factors I think now that students have to t- take into account is how am I going to pay for school? School isn't $1,000 a semester. We're talking like tens of thousands of dollars per semester, especially if you go to the p- more private institutions. Um, you definitely see those trends where students are graduating with a bachelor's degree with a hundred plus thousand dollars in Ooh. debt. And, you know, the <laughs> the market's not there to really get you a good job that can pay that kind of debt back Mm -hmm. uh, with just a bachelor's degree. Um, But I think one of the things, like when you're deciding a school, I I very much agree with you. There's still that old mindset that the school that you went to is a representation of your ability and your skill, you know, and to some extent it might be, it might be a representation of your academic ability, but, you know, academics aren't the only thing that matter when doing a job. Most of the time you learn the skill set that you need for a job on the job with or without training, in my experience. Um, and I think if ever more so, you know, that scandal with Aunt Becky paying her, mm-hmm. her way for her daughter into USC, I mean, just shows that it's just a name. Someone, some, maybe, you know, people are there because their parents got them there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a bigger conversation altogether, but ultimately I think a degree is a degree. Obviously, if, you know, you printed a degree from an institution that's not accredited, that's one thing, but, you know, a degree is a degree in the sense that whether you went to a, a public school, you went to community college, 
ultimately, you know, it's a thousand ways to get to the same destination. Yeah, definitely. And I think at the end of the day, yes, your degree might get you an interview, the the name of the school, somebody might recognize it, but at the end of the day, can you perform? Can you do what you were paid to do? Um, and I was reflecting on this because uh, I remember uh, hearing this uh, by um, Jordan Peterson, which is kind of like a mentor of mine that I just follow online. And are you competent enough to do the job? Yes or no? When you go to the dentist, do you ever ask them? their degrees, what school did they go to, to your doctor? Do you ask them? Do you check their credentials? Do you actually go online and actually check that this is a valid doctor? Uh, not really. You just show up and you're like, hey, I got pain or I have this trouble. Can you help me and fix me? Um, can you do what I'm going to pay you to do? And if they do it, you go back. And if they're affordable, if not, then you don't go back. I don't think we ever get caught up in what school did you go to? What are your credentials? Uh, what, what was your, your GPA or anything like that? I mean, if you're in pain, you just want to see if they're going to alleviate that pain or not. 100%. I, I you know, I, I think you're right. I've never actually asked my doctors, where have you gone? Where did you go to school? Where did you do? I just care about getting the problem solved. Exactly. And, and are you competent? Uh, can I get it for cheaper somewhere else? Are you going to give me an affordable price? Do I like your personality? Uh, I think that goes to say, and, and you know, you say you fall through the cracks and I think we all kind of do, man. We all take different paths in life. Um, and I was I was working with a client who was telling me that I think she's 26 and she was telling me how she should have graduated and been done with her life. I was like, who the hell says you should have your life figured out at 26? Like, I'm 31. I'm still trying to figure this shit out, man. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's funny that you say that just because it. I think there's just this traditional stigma of it's a four-year university you have to get it done uh get from point a to point b and that's this is the only way to do it and to be honest with you i think it's it's a really demeaning mentality for those that maybe weren't prepared to take that one math class that they failed and now they have to redo it you know and the fact is that it's just i a professor once told me that um you know there's a thousand ways to get to the same place you know just turn on different GPS uh, apps and you'll find different routes, right? Same thing with education. Everyone has their own route and a different starting point. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the one thing that maybe, um, I don't know if you ever give yourself credit, but I like to sometimes just reflect how far I have come, um, how I'm doing all of these things that I'm doing, um, getting my master's. I have a newborn now, my second child, uh, which is wild. It's wild going back after nine years of having Congrats. my daughter. And yeah, I just, I don't sleep that much. <laughs> I got to say that, but um, just, just, it just takes so much <laughs> energy, imagine. so much energy and so much time that he just takes. And I'm just, part of my mind is like, all right, man, come on, grow up already, get older. Uh, so you can, you know, entertain yourself or do something. But part of me is like, no, don't do it. But we all take different paths. I like my program because I, I'm part-time. Mm -hmm. My, my master's program and the people that are there, I want to say maybe 90 to 95% of them that are in a program are working. There was a baby boom <laughs> that happened at class where like a bunch of girls got pregnant. And then there was me that had the baby too. And it was funny, you know, during quarantine and, and everybody has their, their children. They have to go to work mm -hmm. and they're doing their program. So the conversations are different. The, the, the knowledge that we're getting, we're applying it to the real world, to our jobs, compared to the more full-time programs where you have a 22, 23-year-old who has no world experience and is just talking about theories, theories, theories. I read this, I read this, but not necessarily applying it in the real world. I, you know, I, I think there's definitely that misconception that just because, you know, they have a degree in something, they're going to be good at the job. And I, I, I typically find it that, and like I said earlier, you know, I find that um, hands-on experience is better than someone that just showed up with some theories. Not to demean people that are just coming out of school, you know, but I think it's a, a mix of academic frameworks because most of the theories you're learning are really a skill set on how to approach things but really it's that experience that shows you okay how can i apply that theory mm -hmm. yeah and i think we're at, like a lot of people that are not in this field 
uh, of social work in general or nonprofits, how they work. Um, a lot of people have this uh, these ideas, this thing of how things should be done and how things how to be done. Why don't we do this? It's like, well, it doesn't work that way. There's so much uh, redlining. There's so many things that you got to go through. Perfect example or program. I think the program that we work on, it was an amazing program. It was so wonderful. We helped so many people. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, one day we get told, oh, well, there's no more funding. That's it. Your contract's done. So it's like in the real world, it's not ideal. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's, and I think that is the nature of the beast, unfortunately, when the nonprofit world intermingles with the public sector, where there's contracts or money intermittent. Um, it's just, you know, the nonprofit world really is there to kind of meet the needs that the public sector can't provide and the private sector won't touch because they they can't make money off of it, you know? And so it's there to kind of be that middle ground. And unfortunately, you know, most nonprofits are at the will of their finances and their donors. And it's just, it it really does happen a lot. There's great programs out there that ultimately we'll see an end to. And that's just, it's kind of the way things work, unfortunately, you know, but it's, it is a learning process and it's definitely, I think the best case scenario is to really leave when you leave that program and you're leaving it for the last time. It's just like, what did I take from this and apply it for future programs? Correct. Correct. So, so let me ask you this question. Uh, once you, you know, you have your vision, you have what you want to do. What would be your ideal nonprofit to work for? Or will you make your own nonprofit down the Ooh. line? Or like once you get that degree and you have, you, you already know- have experience. You know, it's funny that you say that, you know, I've always wanted to um, maybe start a nonprofit. You know, I say maybe just because it's easy to talk and it's harder to actually get things going. Uh, (laughs) But one of the things I've always wanted to really approach is mental health, um, more specifically uh, mental health for males and Latino males. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean... Ever since I was doing my bachelor's, one of the things that was an ongoing theme was that we don't have any data for Hispanics. We don't have data for for Hispanic males. And it's like, well, why is that? And it's just like, they don't come into the office. And that begs a, that brings up an even deeper question about taboos within our culture. You know, it's just being labeled crazy. It's just, it's such a really strong stigma to overcome in our culture. Um, so I, I definitely want to help address those stigmas because I know so many people out there that need the help, but because of cultural norms, won't approach therapy, won't approach um, counseling because we see it as only crazy people go to those things, you know? So I'm definitely motivated by that concept. I know that I myself, you know, uh, receiving services at one point from mental health professionals was really eye-opening and i i think until you go through it you don't see the value in it yeah yeah and, and um, i'm so i'm 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 excited <laughs> that you said that because i think that's where i want to go and i think i've been changing my mind a lot about my final project and i think i want to specialize of working with latino men with mental health um one what you said i see the need there's no data. There's no programs geared to it. Perfect example, the parenting class that I have, the fatherhood group, we're the number one in the valley of serving Latino fathers, Spanish classes uh, called Papa, Papa group. And um, there's such a need. Right now, we had to put it on pause. Same thing, the transition, everything's going on with the funding cuts. And I keep on getting so many referrals because it's the only group. They're like, well, where else is there another Spanish uh, speaking group for only fathers? I was like, well, there's none. They don't have none. So I see that need and I'm thinking that it's starting to sink in on me that I might want to specialize on that. I might want to specialize on that population, uh, doing some research, doing some work with that on the long term. So who knows, man? Maybe we might work together later on in the future. As uh, I mean, I'd be more than happy to, uh, to partner up. I think, it, you know, God bless you that you are looking at this and seeing the need just because I know that as is, the conversation really 
goes towards just getting people through the door, regardless of gender, race, ethnicity. And so really trying to refine that conversation into we need Latino support. We need people that can communicate with Latinos and understand the cultural norms is such a needed conversation, but it's such a difficult conversation to have. And anyone that sees the need, I think, you know, more power to them if they can go ahead and approach this. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a different thing because you see all these theories, you learn all this stuff in school, but none of them were applied to Hispanic men, to Latino males. They weren't. It was mostly studies on um, on white children or white people, a middle class. So we have a whole different issue in regards to immigration, in regards to um, just mm-hmm. what was going on with uh, Donald Trump for the past four years, how that impacted that. What does it mean to be a Latino man? It's different than being a black man. It's different than being a white man. It's different than being a Middle Eastern man. It's all different. So I think in that sense, I would love to have like a male center, something like that, where we have different people, you know, have black therapists, have Latino therapists, and we continue to work on destigmatizing mental health because, yeah, you're looked at as you're crazy. You're looked at as, um, you know, you don't open up. That's, that's, those are things for a woman in, in the Latino culture. You know, you get your shit done and you just drink, 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 and that's all you do, man. <laughs> You know, it's it's interesting that you bring up the, the drinking, you know, uh, who doesn't love a, a cold beer on a hot summer day? But um, within the Latino culture, if you notice, it's the re- I, and I'm not going to blame, you know, this specific situation for, you know, high levels of uh, alcoholism. But it's more of if you notice Latino men can only express their feelings with their male friends in that bar setting, in the cantina setting, where or that barbecue setting where it's only a bunch of men barbecuing in the back and then they're able, they're able to open up, right? And they're able to, if they open up, they're able to blame anything they say on the alcohol so it makes it a judge-free zone, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I, I remember being part of an, an organization at CSUN, you know, that focused on Latino men and that one of the things that was always very eye-opening was that when you create a space for Latino men with zero judgment to really push their boundaries and have an open dialogue, an open conversation with, you know, as little judgment as possible, because, you know, we always hear something we don't like and we get, you know, make it a nasty face and get offended. But um, I think for Latino men, it's really important to have that space without alcohol, without a substance that they can call home to really voice their opinions and not be belittled or, you know, seen as necessarily machistas or because, you know, it's, they're trying times, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, uh, you, yeah, I'm reading a book right now called The Labyrinth. It's about uh, uh, Mexican stories. And it really has a different point of view mm-hmm. Because it talked about the drinking and it talked about how just Mexicans need fiestas and how mm-hmm. we're one of the cultures that maintains those fiestas, like in towns, small towns. I think there was a town when that guy interviewed. He did this like in 1980s. Mm-hmm. He wrote like this essay and he interviewed the mayor and he says like, how much do you guys get of income here? Like from the properties? He's like, oh, around 3000 It's like, and how do you manage the budget? It's like, oh, we get federal grants, blah, blah, blah. It's like, and where does that money go? It's like, oh, fiestas. We spend all 3,000 on fiestas. That's how we do just parties. And (laughs) and, and, and that's to spend the whole budget of the whole year and just uh, two parties where they do the saints and, you know, their week-long fiestas parties and everything else. But he talked about that importance. He talked about, like, this is the only time that they get to really speak out and let them vulnerable selves come out through dancing, through joking around through might be a bar fight might be a couple of people uh, get beat up <laughs> over there but they let their anger out so like the town needs that in that sense and to somebody looking at the budget you might be like you're insane you're wasting your whole year's budget on this but it's for the mental health and the economic growth of that town to be able to have that outlet culturally i think you you know i, I i'm very fascinated i uh, by how every culture approaches you know the the cathartic process, you know, of looking to like de-stress, how do we let go of all our anger or stress, right? So like you said, uh, for maybe maybe Mexico, it's uh, the fiestas and actually going out and partying and spending time with families because a lot of times fiestas aren't like here in the US where it's like maybe more of an adult thing. It's a whole family thing. Everyone's out on the streets, everyone's enjoying themselves, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, 
even if drinking is there, a lot of times you notice it's more of everyone's just having a good time altogether. Um, and then if you look at it, other cultures, they have maybe maybe it's not a fiesta, but it's a uh, um, different cultural norms that they use to kind of get through that, you know, whether it's a, another type of festival or it's a relaxing technique or something, you know, um, I know that when, um, I, when I was doing my Japanese studies, uh, by the way, you know, I was doing some Japanese studies back in uh, mm -hmm. college. Um, one of the things that was brought up was that one of the cultural norms is to do something called onsen where um, you go into hot springs and you know you bathe there with your colleagues um it is typically split up into male female and then you know the the you know whatever your comfort level is there but uh it's about just relaxing and so there's a every culture tends to have a built-in structure for de-stressing yes and it's just naturally something that at some point somebody discover and then just kind of picked up and saw the benefit of it and i think that's kind of what I think this was missing in the sense of our American culture. We have what, uh, 4th of July, Thanksgiving, um, where we have these big parties or stuff like that. Um, Veterans Day, not so much Veterans Day either, but we have like, what, two party, probably like big gatherings, events in that sense. Um, and sometimes you can live in a community and not know anyone and not get involved in anything. And I think that's what's missing in that in that sense because... There is so much that we can do of get together, getting to know your neighbors, you know, having some drinks, mm -hmm. whether it may be just water, or just hanging out and talking. I think that's kind of missing in that sense, the village type of mm -hmm. part mentality in the big cities, which is hard. That sense of community. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, you know, I, I try to look here in my area, I try to look for a lot and they, this area does do a lot of events in that sense, a lot of community events. Mm -hmm. uh, but even that, I think they're lacking the advertisement uh, of it. But if you do mm -hmm. look, you do find some events around here, which I think is wonderful. But but thank you for sharing that. Thank you uh, for, for sharing that goal. We mm -hmm. definitely got to stay in touch if we part ways from this agency mm -hmm. because uh, that's something that I do want to work on and I do see the need of it. And like you said, it takes a special individual to, to be able to connect with Latino men. I think that's the hard part that a lot of people don't understand. You can apply just something that was learned somewhere else and just bring it here and expect everybody to open up. <laughs> I remember one of the trainings, I don't know if you were there in the beginning yeah. of the nonprofit. It was like, we sat down in a circle and then they were like, all right, Imagine that there's a butterfly in your hands. And right now we're going to open our hands and you're going to let the butterfly go. And the butterfly is going to symbolize your pain or, or something like that, right? And it was me and somebody else. I'm not sure if you were there. I don't think so. Um, I think it was like two males only. And we looked at each other. We're like, I don't think I was. I would. I talked to like the, the females that were in the class, the girls, the, the, the ladies that were in, in, in the class in that workshop and they loved it. They were all like, wow, that's so beneficial. I can do that with my families. I can do this stuff. And me and the other guy just looked at each other. We're like, what the fuck, man? Like I can never see another man and sit there and be like, visualize this butterfly. And that's what I'm saying. I'm just saying you, you cannot use this approach that yes, it might do work with maybe ladies, maybe more. People that are more in touch with their feelings, uh, people that are more have more insight about themselves. Maybe yes, they could do this, but this is one of those things that will never work in regards to kind of like Latino men saying, using that example. I think just in general, you got to know your audience. You know, um, there's certain jokes you can use with one audience versus another, and I think the techniques also should follow suit. Um, I know that like the, the the example you just gave very much so in my mind kind of has this very hippie vibe of like that nuanced idea of like you have to be very relaxed. It's a spa. And and the fact is that like you kind of use that with me and I'm just like, I'm going to go along with it, but I don't see the value in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think with men in general, as we're having this conversation, it's like you're telling me to put my defenses down. You're telling me to be open and just in front of this room of these people that I don't know. Um, ideally, yeah, maybe it, maybe we can get there one day. Maybe we, uh, as, as you work in a program, somebody can get there and that would be great. But I just don't see that being realistic. So definitely, man, I, I look forward to seeing what, what, what you can come up Um seeing where I think there's money. I think definitely 
if we invest in the mental health of men, of fatherhood, <laughs> it can definitely yeah. um, improve so many things. So many things that's wrong with uh, that's affecting our children, that's having a bad effect mm-hmm. on our children. Just as long as you get dads involved, get them involved, get them involved. Um, but let's switch mm-hmm. a little bit. Let's switch to the next topic, which I know that recently okay. um, you have gotten into life insurances. So you are a broker yes. for life insurance. Can you tell me more about that? Yes. Um, so independent contractor, you know, selling life insurance assigned with multiple different large agencies. Um, you know, I got on, you know, we're always looking for a side hustle. This is Los Angeles. Everyone has a side hustle, you know, either doing, they're doing Uber, Uber Eats, the list goes on and on, you know, Mm -hmm. there's always every, there's just, the struggle is too real, you know? (laughs) Yes. Um, but, you know, I know life insurance, it, it just seems interesting to say the least, like why that? But I had a friend that really pushed the idea on me because he's been doing it for a while. And, he, you know, the first thing that gets you with is like, hey, you're trying to make some money. <laughs> and so I was like, well, yes, you know, and then um, and the rest is history. I went through the process. You know, you have to be licensed. You have to actually undergo some training and courses. Um, but um you know, I, I I do see the value in life insurance. Um, the fact is that it, it's uh, it's a hidden gem in in your financial planning um, because most people, you know, we we think of life insurance and you always think someone died, mm-hmm. somebody got money. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you're not wrong, but typically that's what you think when of life insurance. You know, and let me ask you this: um, did, did you have life insurance before you got you started this side hustle? Yes. So you already had it. So you already yes. had the knowledge of life insurance. Uh, yes. Um, and, you know, to, well, I had an understanding of what the life insurance was. I did understand what I could get out of it okay. personally as a policyholder. Um, same friend that, you know, got me into the business was like, hey, um, he did a presentation on life insurance. Um, I know my parents have life insurance. And I was like, and they, and my even my my parents would both talk to us like, hey, you know, as you get older, you got to start thinking about life insurance. You're young, get it now because it's twenty dollars now or eighty dollars later, you know. Yeah. So that like I, you know, you always hear people say, I wish I would have started when I was young when it comes to finances, and so I've always kept that in mind. And um, so you know, I reached out to a friend, the 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 one that got me into this, and uh, he explained to me, gave me a, a little bit of a in-depth explanation of what life insurance is and um you know i bought a policy (laughs) um but i you know i got my you know i kind of went through the process of getting uh, my license and everything because the sales pitch that he did to me you know about really selling life insurance isn't just it's life insurance you're helping a family out you know this is your opportunity um, to work with communities. Yes, you know you're out to make money, but at the same time, you can use your platform, your your sales to really help communities out because people don't seem people don't understand, especially in like Latino communities or underserved or uh, low income communities, what the purpose of life insurance is because we just think you know someone died and then here's some money, and so. I, I I personally had to get educated on what life insurance is, what the field is, and what the industry offers. And it's so much more than just, um, you know, someone died and here's some money. Um, realistically, it you know, as you get older, you really got to look at your finances and it's like, where can I put my money that it's going to be safe and grow? You know, we're all trying to retire. And it just seems like that retirement age is getting bigger and bigger right it used to right. be what 50 something now it's 65 and you know the everyone keeps hearing that by the time we're 65 we're not going to have social security you know what mm-hmm. i mean so mm-hmm. we keep hearing these these comments and these theories and it's um it you know i i, I think it'd be easier if i explained to you what life insurance is so explain that what is if life insurance mind. yeah go ahead so the purpose of life insurance per, you know, the dictionary definition is to create an estate. So what does that mean? That means to really create a portfolio that encompasses what the what an individual leaves after they die or while they're alive. 
So the thing is that life insurance is a lot more versatile, right? I know um, one of the things we were talking about earlier was, well, um, you know, Latinos, we're not very big on life insurance, you know, it's back to those cultural norms of we don't believe in it, we don't need it. But then now every week, especially because of the pandemic, things are exacerbated Mm -hmm. so much so that every week I guarantee you that you go on like Facebook or any other social media platform and there's someone asking for help through GoFundMe, you know? Yeah. You, you, and and that's tough, you know. That's tough to see. I mean, let alone you know let, for the family that's living it, but it's it's tough to see right now. It's just every week I see a new GoFundMe for someone that has passed away, and typically the individual did not have their affairs in order. You know, no one wants to talk about death in the Latino community, which means we don't prep for when we're gonna die. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so just to kind of give you a quick breakdown, life insurance, there's two types. There's term and there's permanent. So term is, you know, the, the stuff you normally hear, the normal policy that everyone talks about, you know, 20 years, pay 40 bucks, you get 200K in coverage, done deal, you know. And then the other side of the coin is permanent policy. You have a policy that actually has a built-in cash value attached to it. So in theory, you could use your, your life insurance to actually be part of your retirement strategy. So, you know, it, it, it does, it, it is a little bit more premium mm-hmm. and that's why typically they don't offer it to us, right? A lot of the times when you look at the Latino community, you look at uh, lower income communities, um, we're always looking to get more bang for our buck. Correct. Right. We want to hear that I'm getting insured for half a million dollars for $20, you know, <laughs> yeah, um, because yeah. we, we hear that big number and we're like, let me jump on it real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I think permanent policies have not been publicized enough, especially in our communities, because, you know, I, I think it goes without saying many times we as second generation, third generation, we become our parents' retirement plan, right? Because they move in after they're old and no longer working. We supply their money. We supply their their housing, their food, you know, and we, we never really give a, a thought to, well, how is my dad going to pay for his bills when he's 72, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I never give thought to that. And even and, and, and when you so bring it up with insurance, um, I, I think yes. when when you bring it up, then you mm-hmm. are looked at as a bad son in that sense. Like for example, like hey mom, what are you going to do? I remember this. I had a conversation with a family, and I brought it up, and this was about five years ago. Because um, I've always been very intrigued about money, finances, and all the stuff. I didn't know anything. Nobody ever taught me. I just literally just heard a radio show. And that mm-hmm. kind of intrigued my interest. And I asked somebody, somebody that I know very close, and asked him, hey, guys, what are you guys going to do when you guys get old? And they looked at me, and they're like, well, my children are going to take care of me. And I was like, okay, but what if, you know, your son decides to get a girlfriend or a marry and then that woman doesn't like you and they're not going to help you. It's like, no, 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 no. They, they have to take care of me. Or the other answer that I heard too was like, oh, I have a, I have a 401k. I'm set. Don't worry about it. My job's going to take care of me. And, and that day I, I realized <laughs> and I just, yeah. I stayed quiet that day. I was like, okay, well, maybe you guys just got to think about retirement. Um, and little did I know down the road, this person uh, was let go for a job. Um, and then I even asked later on, oh, what about your 401k? Did you roll it to there? Like, oh, no, it's still somewhere over there. So it's like, like those little things that get lost that you think your job's going to take care of you. You think your children are going to take care of you. Right now during COVID-19, I think it showed that even, you know, young adults were dying as well. Um, and, and I think it's hard. It's, it's, it's a tough yeah. thing to talk about, but you do have to discuss it because it does change your generational tree from the point of if I, I you know, I, I go ahead. Oh, sorry. I, I no, I think I, I think the underlying topic for Latinos is the topic of death. We don't like to talk about death unless it's in the context of a fiesta, right? Correct. The other was muertos. When we, you know, culturally, we know that we talk about uh, death in the 
perspective of we respect and honor our ancestors Mm -hmm. and those who came before us, you know. Um, But up to that point, we look at death through that viewpoint, but we don't look at it as it's there's more to death than just dying, you know, Um, because when you die, you know, you, do, do you ever hear the stories of like grandpa left, like he died and left no will. And so now all your uncles are fighting for the terrenos. They're Horrible all fighting man. for the land. That's the and, worst. <laughs> and so, or, you know, and so you hear that story constantly, you know, that someone died and didn't leave anything in order. And so now it's a mess, right? Or that relative that died and didn't leave anyone appointed with anything. So now everyone's fighting for what they left or who's going to pay for the funeral, you know, and, and nobody wants to talk about death in the, in that, in that concept of like, there's more to this just because you're dead. Doesn't mean that's the end because it's not. Yeah. And that, that's, that's what sucks because I'm actually was going through that a couple of months ago where a family member of mine's uh, in Mexico passed away and left some assets. And then I guess my dad was supposed to inherit them, but he passed away. He didn't leave anything. So it's just a mess. Everybody's fighting for that. Everybody's uh, trying to get a piece of the pie and all that stuff. But, and it's not even that much when you convert it to, to dollars, but it's just that principle. And yes, I've seen so many funerals, even driving down through the neighborhoods, you see kids with billboards like, hey, we're having a car wash to do a funeral for my friend, for this person, for the other. And, and I think... You, I think you're right where you talk about, you know, and I'm reading this through that book that I mentioned about the fiestas. It's like death. Like, yeah, we'll celebrate it. We'll party. We'll do fiestas with the day of the death and all that stuff. We'll have pictures hanging around our house, which I find very creepy of all the family members that have passed away. And we'll look <laughs> at it all the time. We'll yeah. look at them, you know, like, oh, they're watching you. You better be careful. But you never talk about your death. You talk about everyone else's death, but not your individual death. And what does that mean moving forward? Um, and you're right. I mean, it's gonna cost like ten thousand to do the funeral, to you know, buy the the space yeah. to bury you. And I think this is where where the shift in mentality comes because we talk about like oh systematic racism, oh we talk about oppression, we talk about capitalism, and all these things. And yeah, all these systems are there. But I think. It makes a difference when, I'm going to use my example, if I die today, what am I leaving behind for my children? Am I leaving a bill for them to worry? Now they have to pay 10000 Now they have to pay 20000 Now how are they going to replace my income? Mm-hmm. Am I leaving that? That has nothing to do with systematic racism or oppression or capitalism or nothing like that. Or am I buying mm-hmm. a, a life policy from from Anthony? <laughs> um, and now I'm leaving them a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand. <laughs> am I leaving a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand for them? And where they know, can... Go ahead. You know, I think it's so much more than that. I mean. Um... I think everyone overemphasizes, you know, the hundred thousand dollars I'm leaving for when I die. But the thing is that uh, life insurance is much more than that. Um, because, you know, if you have a, an honest broker that's selling you a policy that is going to benefit you, he's not going to try to sell you the 500,000 policy for $20. He's going to get, sell you that hundred thousand dollar policy that also has, Uh, living benefits, which mean that in case you get sick or you become permanently disabled or, you know, the medical circumstances, um, those extreme cases where you're no longer going to be working for more than a year or for the rest of your life, you do have money that gets thrown your way to help you with those transitions. Um, uh, This, you know, I have a, I I know someone that uh, the family bought a policy for the mother, uh, their mother. And unfortunately the mother did end up with a rare form of cancer and, um, you know, she's still alive. She's still fighting, you know, but, um, who was going to front the the bill? You know, they have medical insurance, but everything costs money. You know, somebody's got to pay those co-pays. Somebody has to pay for the difference in the medication price. And ultimately who does that fall on, you know? And so, when the thing is that most policies now, like I said, a good policy should, it shouldn't just be about the number about when you're dead. It's also about making sure that you have something to fall back on in case you get sick. 
And so that's that's the second component to life insurance is that living benefit. It's for when you're living, so you get a benefit out of it. And the third uh, that I definitely want to cover, and I think is extremely underrated within um, minority or low-income communities, is the cash value component. Um, so this component is, I think the simplest way to understand it would be a built-in retirement plan or a, or a built-in retirement fund in the sense that you can set it up. And, you, and by that, I mean, really your broker can set it up um, to uh, have a portion of your premium, right? So if you're paying $60 a month, let's say 15 of those are going to be put into the market and in theory, depending how long, you know, obviously like if you started when you were 20 versus when you're 35, you're going to make more money on your money being in the market longer. You know, that's an extra 15 years that it's in there. And so in theory, I think, you know what, I think the simplest way to me to explain it, it's like a friend of mine recently was really looking at his retirement and he, so he approached me and asked me for my advice. And uh, ultimately we got this 27 year old, the policy for $80, you know, it's, it's more than those uh, half a million dollars for $20, you know, <laughs> but he got a hundred K in coverage for his family when he's dead on top of that, he, you know, the living benefit and then the cash value, we were, you're able to make it so that when you're 65 or, you know, whatever age you want to set it at, you have a, um, lifetime income benefit so you make so you will get a paycheck in the mail every month until you die once you reach that age nice. that you set in your contract and on top of that he's looking at about you know and obviously these are projections but uh up to 120k of uh, just a lump sum of money that he'll have in an account by the time he's 65 and all from paying 80 dollars a month yeah and and and, and i think and i think you were to put yeah, I think I think those are the things that, you know, maybe you're not exposed. We don't talk about it because we don't talk about that. Because I think that was a very good point you brought, Anthony. If you start talking about death and you start as a family, like, what am I going to do if I die? What are you children going to do? I think it starts sparking the conversation. Mm -hmm. And then you start looking at what are your options? Well, maybe we should get your life insurance. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, you know, it's $80 or it's $60. I can't afford that. Well, last Friday, I saw you going to buy a 12 pack of beer for $25. Or last time <laughs> I saw you, you know, buy a couple of yeah. bottles. I, th I think I understand the, the, the limits with uh, low income families that are on EBT, that are have no mm -hmm. cash. But I think the majority of us can set aside 20 bucks per paycheck every two weeks at least at least you know, and, and, and we can mm -hmm. cover those policies and, you know I, I definitely understand that you know mm -hmm. sorry I, I think it's and, and I, I think an honest broker will tell you and you know your agent should obviously you know everyone's out to make money yeah but an honest broker an honest agent it's going to tell you um, they're going to everyone obviously is out to make sure that you're a hundred percent covered, but should really be honest with you. What can you afford? Right. If it's a 15, $20 policy for 50 K or a hundred K like that's, that's okay. You know, it's not about, Hey, I can actually, you know, if one day you can go and you can change these policies as you go, you know, you're locked in for one year. And after that, you can go ahead and add things to your policy. It's not just this is what I bought and this is what it is. No, it's ongoing, you know. And I think um, it's really looking about, yeah, I'm going to give up those three Starbucks coffees because Starbucks is, you know, it's a pretty penny. It's like six bucks for a cup of coffee. Yeah. I'm going to give up those three Starbucks cups of coffee to make sure that if I die, my kid has something to fall back on. You know, I know that's a really weird thing to say, but it, it can be as simple as that. Yeah. And I think that's that's how we change and, generations. You know, just, that's how we change generational wealth as well. Because you're all now you're leaving your kid, which you know, knock on wood, you don't die and you're there for them because the benefit of you living is way more than if you pass away. But if something does happen, I mean just look for example, did you see what happened in Texas in the in the highway? With all those car crashes, yeah, yeah. Um, what was, was the car count? I, it was, I think, I it was 100. It was above, 
I think it was a hundred. I think a hundred cars yeah. that were just crashing. It was horrible. It was something that no one driving in that freeway said, "I'm gonna die today." It's just something happened, and that can happen to us every single time that we get on the on the highway. Don't want to build any anxiety here, but we can die at any point. But now, if you leave a policy for your children, you're leaving them that lump of money. Where now mm-hmm. your child, you know, has this money, and hopefully you talk to him about investing. Hopefully you 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 were able to educate them on, mm-hmm. or, or they ask, okay, well, how did my dad get that money? Okay, what can I do with this money now? Um, how can I invest it and continue to build that wealth where we get out of poverty, where we switch mm-hmm. our, our family tree, and more important, you know, they don't have, you know, they're already dealing with a parent dying. They don't have to worry about are we going to pay the rent this month or how are we going to, you know, cover the bills coming yeah. up? Yeah. And, you know, the hard part is that, you know, sometimes it's the main breadwinner, right? Let's say it's the father or the mother, right? It, it, sometimes it's like, well, how are we going to make the, the difference in the lost income, right? Because yes, you're, you're stricken with you know, the loss of your significant other or, you know, your mother, your father, but suddenly it's like, well, how are we going to pay the rent now? Right. Because maybe the main person or the only person working at that moment lost their job. And it's like, how are we going to put food on the table? How are we going to pay the bills? And so, you know, any, any broker would try to, you know, help you find a policy that will cover that for an extended amount of period, right? Make sure there's enough money in that policy to make sure that you can cover the funeral and all those expenses, cover any of your debt, right? Because you, your debt passes on, mm-hmm. it, it's living. So it moves on to your, your, your next of kin, right? And so then on top of that, it's like you wanna make sure you leave enough money in there so that if you were to die, your kids can still you know, live in the apartment that they live in, or they can keep the house that you live in and they still have enough for their expenses. Right. And it, and it's interesting to say the least how you see how $20 can offer so much. And it, it, it's just, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's just so hard to see families that like now are struggling to come up with those $10,000 for the funeral And you look back and you're like, I really wish they would have had like a $10 policy, a $20 policy, because now this wouldn't be happening. Because that's just an added stress that the family does not need. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, that's, 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 it's a culture thing, definitely. uh, Or, or, or lack Mm -hmm. of access, lack of knowledge to this information. Um, And I think that, (sighs) I think that one of the biggest problems is that we are not people like you and I that know this information are not reaching these individuals. Oh, there's mm-hmm. not enough. We're seeing a higher number and I'm glad, I'm glad you're doing this because you can go up to a Hispanic family, a Latino family, and you can talk to them about this. And you're like, I know what this is like. Mm-hmm. I know what can happen. I understand you. And I think the most important thing, and one of the things that I'm telling all my friends, and some are listening, some are not, is like, just if you can get a policy for $10, $15, get it now. And I talk to them more about investing, right? And I'm telling them, get open a retirement account. Do this, mm-hmm. do that. Even if you can only put 10, 15 bucks and they're like, oh, how much money is it going to make me? It doesn't matter. Don't think about that. It's about setting the foundation. Because if you have, this is the way that I see things. If you have a $10 life insurance policy, well, guess what? Your income most likely is going to go up mm-hmm. as you get older. That's proven statistically. So if you mm-hmm. start making more money and now you have an extra 50 bucks every month, it's way easier for you to call your broker and say, hey, let me up it to 60 now or to $50 than having to say like, should I get mm-hmm. one? Should I not get one? It's easier. If you have a retirement account, if you're investing in the stock market and you, you just invest 20 bucks here and there, but then all of a sudden you start making way more money it's easier because you already have those accounts open to do it so one of the most important things that i think i can just say is just get one just start even if you can only afford 10 20 bucks a month and it doesn't sound like a lot but the moment that your income does go up then you can get a bigger policy that will cover you more in that sense Oh yeah, definitely. And it's, it's, it's much so about the long game, you know, we're, we're, cause obviously if you're trying to make, you know, a hundred thousand dollars overnight, you know, tell me how you're going to do that because I will follow you if you can do that. Legally. But, Legally. Um, okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, that 
it's just, yeah, you got me there. I was like, would I take it any other way to make a hundred K? And it's like, okay, maybe, maybe, but, uh, the, you know, it's, it's just, I, I think people haven't been educated in the sense that life insurance can be a financial tool to, for retirement. You know, I, I know people that ha- started off with, you know, like a $40 policy because they could at that point and then just built it up. Made, they got themselves a permanent policy and something I just want to kind of double back before I forget is a permanent policy means you have coverage until you hit a hundred, right? It's, in theory, it's permanent until you die. Okay. okay. You need to update Bixby voice. And so <laughs> that was Google listening. Um, man. And so, <laughs> yeah, I know it's scary. Sometimes <laughs> it, it listens too well. Um, <laughs> But you can set it up so you know you 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 start when you're 25 or 30 or whenever, and your last payment is when you're 65, and then after that you have coverage until you die, and so you don't pay after 65, right? So not only that, so it's just like it. I think it, it, it's it's worth sitting down with someone that knows a little bit about the life insurance uh, industry, just so that they can help you understand that it's not just a policy, but it's also it's going to set me up for my retirement. It's also going to help me get that that two, three, four thousand, seven thousand dollar check every month in the mail. Yeah. yeah. Instead of I, you, you know what I mean? Like instead of me just relying on what I have in that four hundred one k. And keep in mind, those four hundred one k's are not safe. Right. It goes ups and downs. That's and the downs. biggest thing. Yep. 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 Mm-hmm. So, so I think I know I, a lot of people lost. Yeah. I, I, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just point. you know a lot of people lost. Um, at the beginning of this pandemic, people lost close to 10 years worth of growth, like growth in their 401ks, you know? And so it's just, it's scary to think that like so much effort and so much time and money just disappeared overnight. Correct. Correct. And I think that's why, you know, and that's a whole nother conversation with diversifying and mm-hmm. having your money in different, uh, different pots not in the same place everything but i think this is a great start anthony and i think we're gonna wrap it up uh because i think this is a great start having these conversations uh you know talking about this uh getting the the education out there and i do hope that um you know mm-hmm. s- some people will contact you some people will speak to you and i think the scariest thing is just picking up that phone and contacting a broker man i think this is the scariest thing i remember one time i went and i looked up a financial advisor and i went and i talked to him and we were really excited about starting our retirement accounts um and then the guy's like all right i'll charge you 800 dollars a year to manage your retirement accounts i was like holy i was like those 800 i was like well I mean, I could pay for them, but then that means that I'm just going to invest way less in it. If you're talking about investing yeah. 100, 200K, that makes sense. 800, somebody's going to manage it for you. We're in mm-hmm. no position to do none of that. I was talking about maybe investing 1,000 per year, but 800 in fees. But I remember going to him and mm-hmm. just listening to the things that he said made a lot of sense. He sat down with us and he made a budget and he says, there's a gap mm-hmm. in your budget where we cannot account for $1,000. I got home. I went again, did the budget. There was $1,000 that we couldn't account for. You know what that was? 7-Eleven, eating out, AM, PM, Chick-fil-A here, in and out here. <laughs> and it was stupid stuff. It was stupid stuff. Yeah. And, was, and when we looked at it, we said $1,000 in food per month mm-hmm. on things that were not the market, not, not necessarily lunches and stuff like that. No, it was just food being wasted on different stupid things that we had so we tightened that budget so i think even going to a broker and just having a conversation just having a conversation with Mm -hmm. a broker getting that knowledge maybe you don't sign up with them maybe you go with somebody else maybe you go get two three opinions but at least you start getting that that knowledge there in that sense i think that's what's important but if somebody wanted to get in contact with you uh plug in your i don't know your information here if somebody wanted to reach you ig or whatever yeah uh definitely yeah, so uh, my name is Anthony Melgar. You can reach me through, uh, you can give me a phone call at 818-336-1192, or you can shoot me an email at iacphp at gmail.com. I repeat, iacphp at gmail.com. Even if it's just a question, hey, you know, even if you're not interested in buying a policy, I'm more than happy to answer your questions. I'm here as a resource, not just, you know, to help you find a policy for you, but help you understand what they are. Because a lot of times it's that knowledge 
And maybe it's not for you. Maybe you know that knowledge that you pick up that day, that nugget of information. Suddenly you can help share that with your family members, help them make those decisions that they need help with. So, you know, for me, it's a win-win. I can help someone uh, find something or gain some knowledge. Perfect. That's a win for me. Definitely, definitely. And thank you so much. I think we're going to have to definitely come back to this issue, uh, talk about it more. Okay. I think I will definitely have another podcast about this because I think it's so important just getting this information out there. Just start talking to individuals. You can definitely change your your life through with that. Um, if you happen to pass away, knock on wood, you don't. You have the policy that extends afterwards. You have the retirement. You have the nice check. Mm-hmm. Go retire in another country um, where the dollar's worth way more. And you have that check coming. And there you go. You're set, man. Having a good <laughs> life. Don't depend on your kids. Uh, they might uh, turn out to be little assholes when they grow up. <laughs> Not like you. <laughs> but, but thank you so they much. They might I let th- you down. <laughs> yeah, they might let you down. Thank you so much. No, thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you found it beneficial in any way, please go ahead and share it with somebody who you think it will benefit their lives to listen to today's episode. And if you haven't already done so, please write a review on whatever platform you're listening to. This podcast, it will mean so much. I'd now like to point you to our website, unravelingminds.com, where you can find some blog posts, previous episodes, and or social links to Instagram, Facebook, and to anchor.fm, where you can support the podcast if you like to support financially, where you can also leave a message if you like to leave a message with some ideas, some topics that you'd like to discuss, or if you'd like to be a guest in the podcast, I'd love to collaborate. You can contact me through unravelingminds.com, or you can go through anchor.fm slash unravelingminds podcast and leave a message there. Thank you so much. And remember, we're not done. We're just getting started.